You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's scripture is Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do... Thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have, Lord Jesus, shown yourself to us in your life and death and resurrection. Might we trust you more. Father, we pray that you would give us grace. We want to believe, so we pray that you would help our unbelief. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Kyle, which is it, man? You said earlier this was an X-Wing, but, but then you t- said earlier it's more like a TIE, I think it's more like a TIE fighter. Yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm, I'm gonna do my best to make sure that this doesn't go away, because uh, I like it here. Well, happy October, everyone. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service, and this is the best month of the year. In the power rankings of months, October is the best. It's my favorite. Uh, cooler air, balloons in the sky. Uh, We're now a few months into the semester, but many of you have had changes to adjust to over the past couple of months. Whether you are new students in a new uh, school, a new elementary school, or high school, or college, or grad school, you have new classes, new teachers, Uh, you have all of these changes to adjust to. Many of you have started new jobs in the past few months. One of you was telling me this week about an initial HR meeting, like dress code, and how the new place like handles time off, and all of these expectations. Many, if not most places, have an employee The flowers? Sorry, sorry, hey, sorry, I had to interrupt my, I just saw Michael and Leah flowers here. All right, we're glad you're here. Uh, All right, anyway, where was I? Yes. Uh, employee handbooks. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're at a new school or you're at any school, most students don't read them, but you have a student handbook. You have an employee handbook at your workplace. Uh, like, I think uh, you, you, if you have a question of how you're supposed to handle this or that, your HR person or your teacher or your principal might say, just check the handbook. Well, we've been thinking quite a bit over the past few weeks together about change, about expectation, and even conduct when a person comes to faith in the promises of God in Christ. How when a person is brought to a spiritual rebirth and then lives now in the city of God under the good king, there are now new norms and new expectations as his people take on the character of the king. And for the first many years of this living in the kingdom, shoot, maybe for the first several decades of living as a Christian, It can be a little disorienting. Like, it's good to live here. Most Christians know and believe. We're so thankful for the patient grace of our king that allows us and draws us into his character, but sometimes we're left thinking, what are the expectations? And I think we can tend toward thinking about then the Bible as then our student or employee handbook. 
Like, if you've got questions about life and the kingdom, what are the rules and expectations about this or that, you just, like, kind of flip to the back, and then you find this, and then you go to heading 7, article B, line 42, and bada-bing, bada-boom, that's how you're supposed to live now with this uh, problem that you have in life, or this way of being in your life. But the Bible is less of a rule book for new employees and more of an ongoing meal for a family, a meal at the family dinner table by way of instruction, by way of modeling, and by just his way of being. The father shapes the kind of people that he wants his children to be. Less, this is what you have to do because the book says so, and more, this is who we are because we belong to him. So we're picking right back up where we left off last Sunday when we were considering Ephesians 5, 6 through 16, that we children of God should, must walk in the light and becoming like him. We are to make wise use of the time, our minutes, our hours, our days, our weeks, our months, our years, with forethought and with diligence to actually consider who we are being shaped by and then intentionally pursue that which is wise and not unwise. Well, because of all that, Verse 17 then just flows right out of verse 16. Verse 16 said, not as unwise, but as wise. And then verse 17 then says, not as foolish, but understanding. Verse 18, not as drunk, but filled with the Spirit. So we're going to combine and then separate a couple of those things here tonight to walk through verses 17 through 21 in three steps. That we children of light should seek three things. We ought to, and we should, and we must seek wisdom, filling, and thankfulness. We must seek wisdom, seek filling, and seek thankfulness. So first of all, seek wisdom. Now this heading isn't just a rehash of verse 16. It's also a rehash of verse 10, where Paul says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Last week we thought about that wisdom is hard. It's not that it's impossible to discern what God desires. And so if that's true, then your guess is as good as mine, and Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and nothing is objective. Let's just all try our best. That's not what Paul is saying. There are so many other places, even in just the verses before in chapters 4 and 5, which reveal that Paul is really anything but a moral relativist. And so what does he mean, then, to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord? And then in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, before coming to any conclusions, let me make this even a little bit more complicated. We are to understand what the will of the Lord is, and yet in Ephesians 1.9, after saying that through the blood of Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness, grace upon grace, Paul says that God has actually made known to us the mystery of his will. His will is clear. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth, and in chapters 1 and 3, God is revealing that what was previously once hidden, his will, his desire and actions in time and space, are now made plainly known so that we might now walk in his clear and revealed light. And so now, Paul is just hammering over and over and over again in chapter 5 that we need to be intentionally moving toward figuring out what that means for our lives. So, is it that the will of God has been clearly and plainly revealed or not? Yes, yes. We must grab hold of, appropriate for ourselves what is clearly made known. There are some very clear non-negotiables for the people of God, for the society of the king. 
We've already thought through many of these over the past few weeks, that God's people must be a people of truth and not lies, of gentleness, not anger, of diligent work, not laziness or stealing, of encouraging and edifying speech, not tearing down, of sexual purity and faithfulness, not indulgence and immorality. But in the same way that the law of Israel included many enduring and eternal truths about God and about his character, the law was not like a flowchart for every single possible situation that like some Israelite named Haggai might find himself in. Or when Hannah from the tribe of Simeon is like struggling with how to best parent her children with this very difficult specific situation, like which law does she turn to? When some merchant named Elias is wondering if he should buy this bit of land or not, sell this one or that one, what law does he look up? He can certainly think through principles of stewardship and generosity from other laws, how he should consider the poor of Israel with his property. Hannah can think through principles of parenting and keeping God and his word in front of her children always, even how and best to discipline, but not as a script for her exact words and actions. That when my kids do this, God's word tells me to do that. And when they do that, God's word tells me to do that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes the law speaks very clearly to specific scenarios. Like when my ox gores someone, this is what I must do. But more often than not, the law gives Hannah and Elias and Haggai principles. And even very clear guardrails which they must not go over or around, not a flowchart. Even in the Old Covenant, people of the external law, God was was forming a people of a distinct character. But more than that, the law was intended toward forming a people of distinct love. Love for God and love for neighbor, but also a people of wisdom to know what love for God and love for neighbor actually and practically looked like. So here in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Like we thought about last week, Paul is telling us, wake up, switch your brains on, switch your ears on, your eyes on, your senses on. Be aware of the ways in which the values and idols of this world are shaping and forming you. Become wise. Do not be foolish. If you were with us here two summers ago when we spent many months together in the book of Proverbs, we thought about, it, about wisdom as being kind of like the applied life knowledge of an experienced sailor. That the longer a sailor has worked on his boat or ship, he knows exactly what to do in every situation because he's just seen it all. It's almost like he can even see the future, that if this is happening in the winds or the seas, and if this is happening with my sails or my ropes, then I know that this is what will happen. Someone who is brand new on the boat doesn't know these things. This is why the Proverbs and the rest of the Bible value the old. They value experience, values wisdom. But not every old person is wise. Wisdom is something that we must intentionally pursue. The Proverbs portray wisdom like a road, in the same way that if you like, park your car at the Elena Gallegos campground, you don't just get out of your car and then A couple minutes later, you're at the top of the Sandias. No, instead you take a series of thousands and thousands of small and forgettable steps, and then after several hours on the Pinot Trail, then you're at the top of the Sandias. Wisdom is a slow, thoughtful, and intentional road, a process of one small and forgettable step after another. Become that. 
Do not be foolish. Do not go into this house that leads to death, but come to this house that has a banquet of life. Or to use Jesus' illustration, build your house, build your life on his life, on his words, which are like a rock. To ignore his life, to ignore his words, is to build your house on sand. So Paul, with the rest of Holy Scripture, has elsewhere given us some very clear guardrails. There is certainly external action that people of the king must not pursue, must not ignore. But remember what we said in week one of Ephesians, that Paul's theology is far less concerned about whether Christ is in you, whether you have received Jesus, and way more concerned with whether you are in Christ, whether you are united to him, absorbed in him, and becoming like him in his character, whether you are united united to his character, his delight in the Father, his empowerment and walking by the Spirit, it is not your character. It is not your good works. You're putting sin to death that saves you. It is Jesus and his patient grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness that welcomes you into the family of God. And if you have not come to know these things, he is inviting you, welcoming you into this family, into this life with God. But if this is you, but now, do not be foolish. But in your knowledge of the king, become like him. Become like the greatest and wisest philosopher who has ever lived. Know him. Know his wisdom and his philosophy so that when you are thinking about parenting your children, when you are thinking about which classes you should take or what major you should pursue, when you are considering if you should buy this property or sell that one, When you are considering how and when and if you should use your phone or this social media feed and what shows or movies to watch and what is the best use of your next hour or day or week or month or year, that you might understand what the will of the Lord is. All the while walking on the road, as children of the light, no longer as the Gentiles, within the very clear and life-keeping guardrails of Christian ethic and conduct but that the mystery of his will has been clearly revealed, so now Paul is saying, grab hold of it. Grab hold of the risen King Jesus. Appropriate it for yourself. Make it yours. Jesus is uniting all things in heaven and on earth, including your life, including your heart, into himself. Make it yours. Do not be foolish. Be wise. Seek wisdom. But now secondly... Seek filling. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, world, what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, for Paul to address getting drunk seems to have come out of nowhere. On the one hand, he's addressed lots of things with like these one-sentence guardrails, so this command for Christians shouldn't come as too surprising. But again, some might think, ah, yes. There's the Bible again, concerned that someone somewhere might be having fun. To which I might reply, yes, there's the Bible again, concerned that someone somewhere might be missing the meaning of life. Alcohol here is certainly an issue that Paul wants to address, and we will too, but it almost seems to be acting almost as a foil, a foil against Paul's primary and main concern that God has intended for humans to be completely and utterly united into his triune life of love. That is the meaning of life. 
that he is intended for humans to be completely and utterly united into his triune life of love, to have positional unity in Jesus and to become like him. But how? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. No longer one building, the temple filled with the Spirit of God. No longer one person, a prophet or a king or a craftsman filled by the Spirit for come and go purposes and periods of time. Now, men, women, Jew, Gentile, young, old, rich, and poor. Now, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Sealed and indwelled that we might know and walk with God for eternity. Every human in time and history ought to sing and believe what we often sing here together, that I was made to walk with you. This is what I was made for, to walk with you. This is why I was born and is why I exist today and for eternity, to be filled and full of the Spirit, to make the revelation of the mystery of God's will more and more mine yours. A true Christian is forever sealed by the Spirit, but a Christian, like a gas tank, can be more or less full or filled by the Spirit. Paul is saying, pursue a full life in the Spirit. Pursue being filled by the Spirit. Now, we're going to swing back around to what that means in just a second, but in response to that, that you were made to know, you were made to experience and walk and commune with the creator triune God of the universe by being filled with the Spirit, Paul is saying, and yet we seek that kind of meaning of life, that kind of filling with all kinds of other things. And one of the chiefly universal ways that we seek this alternate and imitation filling is through alcohol. Now, what this verse is not doing is prohibiting the use of drinking of any alcohol in the Christian's life. The Bible is not just, Paul has not just become an absolute teetotaler. Throughout the Bible, people are drinking wine, and not just in a look, in, look at what kinds of bad things happen when you drink kind of a way, like we might say the Bible does with polygamy. There's lots of polygamy in the Bible. And it nearly always ends in strife and bitterness and often death. The Bible can be descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. It can describe things without necessarily prescribing things. But is that what the Bible does with alcohol? No, elsewhere. Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for his health. And while there are absolutely proverbs warning against the excessive abuse of alcohol that leads to drunkenness, Psalm 104 praises God for providing grass, and for the growth of livestock, for providing bread for our strength, and for providing wine, which makes the heart glad. The psalmist there is praising God for wine that makes the heart glad. There is something physiologically that a glass of wine can do as a gift to help someone rejoice in the presence of the Lord, as God allows the Israelites to do in Deuteronomy 14, to rejoice with wine. Even Jesus drank wine. Apparently, often enough, that his enemies used it against him and accusing him of being a drunkard. And in his very first miracle, he turned water into wine for a wedding celebration that people might rejoice and be glad. But wine is also, in the Bible, a metaphor of judgment. The prophets fairly and regularly uh, interpret and 
present and future events as God pouring out his wine cup of wrath. He's pouring out this wine cup of wrath onto Israel and to the nations. And so think about that. I think we can just kind of blow past that image. But if God is pouring out wine, what is happening? If people are being showered with wine, the implication is that they are drunk, left to themselves, left to their appetites, left to their lack of cognitive awareness. And that is what is at the heart of the issue here for Paul. It is even why Paul is placing this verse right here in this context. We've been reading and thinking so much about being thoughtfully wise, about intentionally walking with discernment, being awake to the realities of this universe, being awake to the culture surrounding me, and being awake to the sinfulness of my own heart. Way back in chapter 1, Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts might be illumined, might be enlightened so that they might see and understand all that is true of Jesus, that he is actually reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. That bit in chapter 1 is why we've somewhat regularly now brought back the old 90s worship song. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Let me see. I want to see you. I want to see you as high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. This is what I want to see, but I need your help. If alcohol, like any other gift, can be a tool for that kind of use, for, we, for us to be able to see Jesus more clearly, to be able to see and rejoice in the good and right rule of Jesus in my life, to be able to see clearly the sinfulness of my own heart, then praise God, use that tool like any other tool or gift. But if this tool or gift is causing my seeing and beholding of Jesus to become less clear, less sharp, with less understanding, then it is no longer a gift to be used, but perhaps a tool of wrath to be avoided. So we might say that wider abuse of any tool does not cancel out the right use of this tool. Just because some abuse something doesn't mean that all others cannot rightly use it. Wrong abuse does not negate the right use of others. There's a Latin phrase that Christians have been using of all sorts of things about this kind of thing for centuries, that right use or wrong use does not cancel out or negate right use. This is certainly true of alcohol. But is it a tool that is helping us see Jesus clearly? And because this is 2022, let's spend a couple of minutes on marijuana. What do you think? All right? Here's where wisdom is necessary. The word marijuana does not appear anywhere in the Bible. So if you had come to me 12 months ago asking, what does the Bible say about recreational use of marijuana? I would have said, the Bible says nothing specifically about marijuana. But the Bible has plenty to say about submitting to your governing authorities. And since recreational marijuana is illegal, you must not smoke pot done and done. Do not break the law. But now, it's legal in New Mexico. So what? Well, I'm not going to be able to say everything that I want to say about this, and for that reason, I'd be glad to pass along lots of good blog posts or books or podcasts if you want to think more deeply about this. But while the Bible does not address marijuana specifically, it does have plenty to say about drunkenness, about sobriety, And why here in Ephesians 5 is Paul warning against drunkenness? Well, because it leads to debauchery, or literally, it leads to wasteful living. 
It is the opposite of a wakeful, intentional, mind-switched-on walking with God when we are drunk. Instead, as one commentator says, drunkenness is symbolic of the height of folly. It is foolishness. It is the loss of direction and the waste of a life without God. That is drunkenness. And I think we could say the same thing about getting high. The purpose of smoking pot is to get high. I know, I know, even there are more temperate, uh, organic strains that only produce a mild buzz, but we can say that it is categorically different. Marijuana is categorically different than what, how some people might drink one beer or one glass of wine. And we can absolutely say that marijuana then is different than drinking coffee. Many advocates of marijuana will make the argument that marijuana is a drug that affects the mind. So any argument that we make for marijuana, we must also then apply to coffee or even ibuprofen. And while it's true that Christians can absolutely abuse coffee and caffeine, I think many of us would say, actually, a cup of coffee early in the morning is actually a wonderful gift for reading the Bible. A cup of coffee actually helps me, aids me in being able to more clearly see the Lord Jesus. So that's the first question that we should ask ourselves of any drug, of alcohol, of coffee, of ibuprofen, of marijuana, certainly of prescription painkillers, which statistically, painkillers are likely a bigger problem for most of you than marijuana. So the first question we should ask is, is this drug clarifying or is it distorting my vision of Jesus and of my sin? Am I not only more prone to clear worship of God with an engaged mind, but am I also more likely to clearly obey God with my heart and with my body as a result of ingesting whatever this is into my body? And by the way, I hope this doesn't need to be said, but I bring all of this up and all of these categories and even painkillers, not to shame anyone. If you find yourself struggling through addiction in any way, please talk to me. Please email me. I would love to help you or point you to those who can. But this is an important issue for all of us, and we must not ignore it or minimize it. The first question we must ask of, is this drug clarifying or distorting my vision of Jesus and of sin? And then a second question we should ask is, is this drug, alcohol, coffee, ibuprofen, painkillers, marijuana, is this drug aiding or enhancing my gifts toward the body? If we still have Ephesians 4 on the forefront of our minds, that I exist as an indispensable gift for the body to grow up in love, then what in my life is stunting or even prohibiting my gifts for the body? Shoot, not even the local church. What is stunting or prohibiting my gifts just to the world around me? I think a very compelling argument against marijuana or against the abuse of alcohol is that if you are ever in a state that you could not effectively care for someone who is in danger, if you are walking by a burning building, or even if just someone gets sick, gets injured nearby, and you are not able to effectively care for that person, then you are putting yourself in a position that you are living for yourself and not for others. So for that reason, I would say that Christian wisdom, I think, says that if you know that you start to feel a buzz with alcohol after three drinks, then Christian wisdom says, don't drink more than two. 
If you feel a buzz at two drinks, do not drink more than one. And if the point of smoking one joint is to get high, and again, I know there are tons of different strains and potencies of organic stuff out there. Not every joint is the same. But if the point of marijuana is to get high, even just a buzzed high, then Christians should not use marijuana. Is what I am ingesting into the body aiding or enhancing my gifts for the body? Or is it turning me in on myself and dulling my gifts? And finally, a third question that I think might be the most important. Is the motive of this drug, whatever it is, to, on the one hand, get a euphoric escape, on the one hand, or is it also, on the other hand, to anesthetize pain? If so, if we are pursuing any drug for euphoria or for an anesthetic, getting away, dulling of pain, then I think we should spend some time thinking, reflecting, praying, and talking with each other about the what and the why. And I think that goes beyond even just getting drunk. In our elders' accountability questions, we used to ask of one another, yes or no, have you gotten drunk since the last time we have talked about these questions? And I think that is a necessary and valuable question. Like, check the box, yes or no, have you gotten drunk? We should ask ourselves those questions. But we changed that question to now be a more incisive and I think more revealing question. And the question is this now, does alcohol have any grip on your life in any way? Does alcohol have any grip on your life in any way? Like I could get to a place where I never get drunk, but I can't wait to get off work so that I can get home and have a drink just to take the edge off. I am using that drink, even just that one drink, one drink that does not lead to drunkenness, to anesthetize against the frustrations, the pains, the anxieties of the day. COVID made mommy wine really funny and acceptable, but should it be? And not just for moms, many of us long to crack open a beer or enjoy a fine whiskey or something. And it's possible to do that even daily, possible. But could you not? Could you not? Could you not drink for a week or a month or a year? If not, I think it's likely that alcohol has a grip on your life and that Paul is saying that actually could be inhibiting the Spirit's work in your life. You are being filled by something, some cheap imitation of what you were actually created to be filled with and by. Now, what I am not becoming right now is your medical doctor. There will be conversations with your doctor about all kinds of drugs, even perhaps medical marijuana that may be useful and helpful. And this is one area that we don't have time to get into today, but we must reject the very, very recent and Western notion that pain avoidance is the highest good in life. That maximal pleasure is my highest good. And speaking about marijuana, I've heard one pastor ask, how many psalms would David have written if he was high? How many psalms would David have been able to wrestle and deeply think through the, the realities of God's glory, of sin, of evil in the world if he just had a joint every night? If he had, if he had all of this available to him. 
This is another sermon for another day, but the worldview of the Bible from start to finish is that while suffering is never something to be pursued or to be sought after, we have a wise, we have a good, we have a loving God who uses suffering to teach us, to grow us, to mold us into people of his own image. Our Lord Jesus himself is pre-described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. This life is not a life to be escaped from or simply medicated through, but to walk as his people with sober minds and with glad hearts, knowing and trusting that he is kind and good. Or as Paul would say in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, which gets us right back to the work and the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can rejoice in sufferings because we know that the Spirit has been poured out in us through the love of God. We Christians, we do not seek a minimalist, a plain, a boring life, but we seek a life that is abundantly full of joy. We seek filling. We seek fullness. But this fullness, much like holiness, is not just something that we stumble into. Like understanding the will of God, which has been plainly made known, being filled by the Spirit is both something that God alone does— John 3, Jesus says that the Spirit, like the wind, blows where it wishes. We cannot control or manipulate the Spirit of God. God alone fills and uses the Spirit for His means and purposes. And yet, at the same time, we have responsibility. We must put ourselves in positions in order to be filled. How does that work? Well, just like a sailboat cannot produce the wind, when the sails are up and the wind blows— It actually has something to catch. The Christian life, Bible reading, prayer, meeting with one another, coming to this table, all of these things are individual and corporate acts of raising the sails, of considering in our days and our 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 weeks and our conversations with each other, of taking time of quiet reflection and contemplation. These are just but a raising of the sail. We cannot demand or manipulate that the Spirit come and move, but when the Spirit comes and moves, there must be something there to catch. And what is the outcome of this? Is that we are filled by the Spirit. Now, when we hear of a Spirit-filled church, what do we tend toward thinking about? When you think or hear of a Spirit-filled church, my guess is you think about speaking in tongues, about healing and miracles. Well, in Ephesians 5, at least, What does it seem that Paul has in mind when he talks about a Spirit-filled church? When people are filled with the Spirit, what do they do? They sing to each other. What? That is a Spirit-filled church, a, a people who sing. He says, but be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, we spent nearly an entire Sunday a few months ago when we worked through our series on liturgy about singing, what it does and what it's for. But to reiterate, singing both does something in us, 
In a parallel passage in Colossians 3, Paul says that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How? How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? By singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing does something in us and to us. But singing is also a response of what has already been done in us. Paul seems to imagine a spirit-filled person not as someone who is like zapping the miraculous out of his fingers as he walks down the street, but rather as a person who like joyfully walks down the street like whistling with a song in his heart. Praise for God for his goodness and his faithfulness. That is a spirit-filled person. And even more than that, a song in his heart which isn't just for the good of that person, but for the good of the body. Ephesians 5, 17, and 18 is in the midst of the book of Ephesians, which is about the church, God uniting a people together and to himself. That is, that the work of the Spirit in my life, that my desire to be filled with the Spirit is not just my own personal spiritual warm blanket. Or as Jen Wilkins says, my own personal Sherpa through the Bible. I think, think we can tend toward thinking about the Spirit as... Uh, Holy Spirit, help me understand this passage today for this particular circumstance in my life. That's actually not the role of the Spirit. Rather, the role of the Spirit is to bring a clear witness to what is already readily available to all of God's people. That is, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the role of the Spirit in our lives, that the eyes of our hearts might be opened and clear so that we might see Jesus as high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory, which then, if we see clearly, changes everything. If we see the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father clearly, then that changes everything about my life, about my next year, about my next month, about this week, about this day, about the next hour. If Jesus is actually real, a person in time and space who has ascended to heaven and reigning at the right hand of the Father. If that is true right now, and then we can see him clearly, it changes everything. And that is the role of the Spirit in our lives. So seek wisdom. Seek filling. Seek filling by that which God has created you to be filled by the purpose of your life to be filled by himself. Raise and trim the sails, individually and corporately, that we might be filled with the Spirit, seeing Christ clearly, and walking as his children, the children of light. But then thirdly and finally, seek, seek thankfulness. I hesitated to make this a third and separate point because here in Paul's argument, giving thanks just like singing and making melody to the Lord, is actually a result or an action of a spirit-filled person. A spirit-filled person actually just gives thanks. But I wanted to swing back around to thankfulness because it's the second time in this chapter where Paul has highlighted it. Remember in chapter 5, verse 4, where he said, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That Thanksgiving there is a surprising word. Like, I think if we were to write that verse out ourselves, we didn't have any context for what he's saying, and we were going to write that verse, we might say, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be holiness. Let there be self-control. But instead, two weeks ago, we thought about thankfulness as being an antidote to immorality. 
Ingratitude is a disease which infects and destroys both people and churches. That is, that if I see, if I see you receiving or experiencing something that I don't have, even more if I see the majority of my church receiving or experiencing something that I do not have, I may be tempted to think that what some receive or experience as a gift, I come to now think that I am owed as a right. Some folks, perhaps many folks, receive a substantial paycheck. Some folks, perhaps many folks, receive the gift of marriage. Some folks, perhaps many folks, are given the gift of children or a scholarship or paid-for education or a financial inheritance, and on and on and on. And then I can come to the conclusion that Either God is not good to me, or there must be something wrong with me to have not earned or received those things that so many others are receiving, or those folks folks are unjustly receiving those things. If God or if society just knew how much more virtuous I am than those people, then, then, but then none of those things are gifts any longer, but they are demands and they are rights based on what I think that I have earned or what I deserve. So to share a quote I've shared a couple times, we are so often disappointed by God not giving us what he never promised us. We are often so disappointed by God not giving us what he never promised us. That is not at all to diminish the very real difficulty and struggle through not having some of these things, especially when so many others are. But the antidote to this is gratitude, thankfulness, Thankfulness for what God has given. Gratitude for belonging to a family of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Which is then exactly how we'll wrap up this section, that when we are thankful for every heartbeat and breath that we have, and we are thankful for the jobs and the food and the shelter that we have, and if this church, these people, then are gifts to you to grow into maturity and the knowledge of God, and you likewise are a gift to them, then verse 21 becomes a very real and easy reality of thanksgiving. To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we are thankful for one another, not making demands of each other, but being quick to defer to one another, not considering myself the main character of my life or of this church, and you all as my supporting characters, as is kind of like the default mode of all of our hearts about how we think about the world, but rather because of the gospel now changing my reality, my outlook, where I am your supporting character. Well, this can only come by our union with Christ, by our being filled with the Spirit, that a Spirit-filled person, a Spirit-filled church is a person or a church that likes to sing, that is generally thankful about life and is quick to defer to the needs of others. And that is the kind of church that I am so glad to be part of. To be part of you. God is making a people of his character, not a people of his rules, a people of light, of sons and daughters of the Father who belong to his family and take his family name and his family business upon themselves. But this family also plays out in our literal and biological families, our nuclear families. So next week, we'll begin a two-week look into families and workplaces, the people and the relationships that we are perhaps most proximately close with, with next Sunday being all about marriage, 
So read, pray, come hungry with the sails up. Let's trim the sails, raise them a little bit more this week that we might be filled with the Spirit, that we might walk with God as we were made to. For the person, the work of Jesus on our behalf and the be- being filled by his Spirit. Let's pray that that might be so. Our Father, we are so thankful. In moments like these, we can actually say we are thankful for your word, for your work in our life. Father, we pray. We pray that you would give us more thankfulness. This life is difficult. It is hard. There are anxieties. There are pains. There are struggles. There are losses. There is disorienting evil in the world. And so it is hard to be thankful. But we pray that by your spirit that you might fill us. That by understanding our positional placement in your family, our being seated with the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father, that we might experience these blessings of the heavenly places, not just in some future eternal reality, but now. Help us to know this hope of your redemption through us in the blood of Christ. Help us to appropriate this for ourselves. Help us to seek wisdom. Help us to defer to one another. Make us a people of your spirit. Make us a people of your character. Make us a people of your love. We pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.